You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, A few big gay things happened this weekend. Big gay things we can all be proud of. Kirsten Stewart, the actress, tapped to host Saturday Night Live. Kinda, sorta, maybe came out during the opening monologue. Sure sounded like it to me. A little background. Kirsten Stewart, who starred in the Twilight Vampire movie franchise, famously dated and famously cheated on her co-star Robert Pattinson. This led Donald Trump, who has famously cheated on every wife he's ever had, including his current wife. This led Trump to attack Stewart in 2012 in a series of, you will never guess it, angry, unhinged tweets. Because cheating is only okay when men do it to women, which is how God intended us to cheat. I think they invited Stewart on to host Saturday Night Live because Trump's no fan of hers and doesn't sound like she's much of a fan of his either. Here she is coming out on SNL. The president is not a huge fan of me, but that is so okay. And Donald, if you didn't like me, then you're really probably not going to like me now because I'm hosting SNL and I'm like so gay, dude. It should be noted that Stewart's so gay comment doesn't necessarily mean she literally identifies as gay. Noah Mickelson writes at Huffington Post, she did date Pattinson, someone who, so far as we know, identifies as male, which may mean she identifies as bisexual or pansexual or sexually fluid or in some other way than gay. Fair enough. Stewart has dated men. She has dated women. Robert may or may not identify as male. So we will have to wait for additional comment from Stewart, who seems to have embraced a dikey look and demeanor. Honestly, she had me wondering if Tegan and Sarah didn't have a lost triplet out there somewhere. Another big gay thing we can be proud of this weekend, Lady Gaga performed at the Super Bowl halftime show. She performed her coming out anthem among a selection of her other hits. And that coming out anthem included the lines, no matter gay, straight or bi, lesbian, transgendered life, I'm on the right track, baby, I was born to survive. It was doubtless the first time the word transgendered has been sung at a Super Bowl halftime show, the New York Times dryly, or was it slyly, observed. There was some question going into the Super Bowl as to whether Gaga would quote-unquote get political or try to make a statement during her set, and she did. But you know what? She was sly. She opened her set with a few lines from God Bless America, then a song by a socialist, a song about a land without borders, and a few lines that will be familiar to most Americans. This land is yours. Under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Did you catch that? One nation, indivisible. Indivisible is the name of the movement that sprung up after the election to fight Trump and his this land is not your land, this is straight, white, male, Christian-only land agenda. Maybe it was a coincidence, but if there's anything we know about Lady Gaga by now, if there's anything we know about the artist she is... Gaga is all intention and no coincidence. But the single best gay thing that happened this weekend was the massive protest in New York City outside the Stonewall Inn, site of the riots that kicked off the modern gay rights movement, and as of June 2016, our newest national monument. LGBT New Yorkers gathered there 
outside the Stonewall Inn by the thousands on Saturday afternoon to protest the Trump administration's attacks, the administration's unconstitutional attacks on immigrants and refugees. Now, earlier in the week, Trump opted not to rescind an executive order signed by Barack Obama that banned discrimination against LGBT federal workers. Some reports indicated that Ivanka Trump may have intervened, convincing her asshole father to keep the order in place. And some reporters wondered whether Trump's quote-unquote pro-LGBT move might divide LGBT Americans from the protest struggle against Trump. Two points. First, LGBT Americans are not fucking stupid. Really, at this point, you would think the enemies of LGBT equality would know at least that. We aren't fucking stupid. We know that Trump has pledged to sign the First Amendment Defense Act into law, which would legalize discrimination against LGBT Americans and make that executive order he didn't rescind moot. And we've just seen him nominate someone to the right of Antonin Scalia to the Supreme Court. And LGBT Americans, like we've been saying since the beginning of the modern movement for LGBT equality, are everywhere. We are everywhere. We have been slapping that on t-shirts and buttons and chanting that at rallies for decades. And it's true. We are everywhere. And we are everywhere because we are everyone. LGBT people come in all colors, all faiths, all classes. We are American citizens. We are refugees. And we are immigrants, documented and undocumented. So an attack on immigrants and refugees is also an attack on queer people because some immigrants and refugees are queer. Queer Americans have skin in this game. We have skin in every game. The right has attempted to drive a wedge between LGBT Americans and immigrants and refugees. They have attempted to divide us. The turnout this weekend in New York City at the Stonewall Inn on Saturday afternoon, that was our answer. We said no. We will not be divided. We are indivisible. Okay, this week on the micro and free Savage Lovecast, tons of your questions, lots of my answers and ads. And on the subscription Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, more questions, more answers, and no ads. And we take a deep dive into polyamory culture with Cunning Minx, the host of the Polyamory Weekly Podcast. She helps me answer a bunch of poly-related questions. And if you're curious about polyamory, be sure to get a subscription to the Magnum version of this show at www.savagelovecast.com. Hi, Dan. I'm a 31-year-old male from southeastern Pennsylvania calling about um, a relationship that I'm in the midst of with a 24-year-old who moved about four months ago to New York City to pursue being a ballerina full-time. Now, my question regards the dynamics of whether or not I am able to voice certain concerns to her about her career, those mainly being the fact that She's moved up to New York. She's got herself a serving job. And frankly, she's been lazy about pursuing her career dancing. Uh, when I say lazy, I mean she rarely practices. She drinks too much. She doesn't keep her diet in line with what a ballerina's would typically be. And that's all fine and well, but her happiness is definitely tied up in her success uh, as a ballerina. And as she continues to lose kind of her physical ability to dance because um, of her kind of lack of watchful eating and drinking and lack of exercise. I've been growing increasingly concerned and I want to say something to her. I've kind of voiced my concerns before in the form of, hey, you know, you moved up to New York to dance. That's the reason that we can't be together all the time, but nothing seems to change. So I don't really know where my place is 
in talking to her about this because I, I mean, as far as ballerinas are concerned, as far as most people, and especially women are concerned, diet tends to be a pretty touchy subject. And so does weight gain. By no means is she uh, what some might consider fat, but she's definitely gained enough weight that it's made um, dancing a little more complicated for her and certainly more challenging and not in a positive fashion. So I don't know if I'm just being an asshole and being overly judgmental or if it's even my place to say something to her about the fact that she's not being very healthy or she's not eating the right things, she's not drinking the right things, or or where my role comes into place here. Um, I'm, I'd love to help, but at the same time, I don't want to hurt her in a really um, significant fashion. I don't want to affect her eating habits in a negative way. I don't want her to stop eating. I don't want her to be bulimic because that's something that um, her sister has uh, toyed around with in the past. I have to say I'm a little shocked by your call because I follow a lot of ballet dancers on Instagram and I wasn't aware that there were female ballet dancers. Maybe that's just selection bias on my part around who I follow on Instagram and why I follow them. Look, boyfriend for now, people move to New York with one dream and New York has a way of grinding out people's dreams, extinguishing the dreams often that people arrive in New York dreaming, but New York also has this ability to bestow a new dream on people who blow into town. Because, you know, if you go to New York because you want to be a singer, you want to be a ballet dancer, you want to be a visual artist, there's a lot of competition there. And you may have been the best goddamn ballet dancer in your county in Pennsylvania, but the odds that that translates into being in the top 0.01% of ballet dancers in a much more competitive market for ballet dancers like New York City are pretty slim. So it could be that your girlfriend is eating a bit of her feelings. Maybe she's grieving the fact that she probably can't be a ballet dancer and she's incubating a new dream. Maybe she's going to go into show dance, which welcomes people of different body types. If you go see Broadway shows, you won't see just women who subsist on a ballet dancer's diet, which is basically cigarettes, three almonds a week and oxygen. You'll see women of all different sorts of body types. But this isn't your place. It's not your place to reach out to your girlfriend from Pennsylvania and knock the pastrami sandwich out of her hand. She's 21 years old. She's in New York City. She's got a job. She's finding her way. She's making contacts. She's having lunch. And you got to let her do that. You got to let her figure that out all on her own without trying to micromanage her from afar. I don't think that you will induce bulimia in her if you attempt to knock the pastrami sandwich out of her hand from Pennsylvania. I do think you will hasten the formal end of this relationship if you try to do that. So if you want to remain her boyfriend for the time being, keep your mouth shut about what she's stuffing in hers. Hi, Dan. I am a 40-something bisexual female married to the love of my life for 20 years. We adopted two boys. For Christmas, we got them tablets. They're 10 and 11, and we monitor our activities, their activities online using a Disney circle, which tells us how long they're on the tablets, what websites they've been to, et cetera, et cetera. We let them have free-for-all time on their computer, and you can just imagine what websites 10 and 11-year-old boys want to go to, which I'm fine with. We're progressive liberals, very sex positive. We're very open with them, um, appropriately open with them. You know, we use the terms penis and vagina. Any questions that they have, we answer. You know, we go over condom use. 
very sex positive in an appropriate light. My question is, at what age is it appropriate to not monitor their online activity? Am I going to need to be policing this until they graduate high school? I don't want to be a mom that smothers, but I also don't want my children to be brought up on, you know, charges uh, for exchanging pictures with, you know, let's say they're 18 and they exchange pictures with their 16-year-old girlfriend. And we talked about that too. I'm just curious, at what age for young men is it appropriate for them to have free internet access? I would say 10 or 11 is a little too young for completely free access to all the delights of the internet. However, you know, asking at what point a young person your sons when they become teenagers, for example, at what point they should be allowed to have free access to the internet. It's like asking at what point should someone who's jumped into a pool be allowed to have free access to H2O molecules. They're swimming in it. Your kids are growing up surrounded uh, by the internet. The internet is everywhere they go. Even if you monitor their devices, even if you put filters on their devices, their friends have devices and your kids are probably going to be tech-savvier than you are, just as the tech-savvy at-risk youth here are much tech-savvier than I will ever be, even with their tutelage. Your kids are going to find a way around whatever blocks you throw in their way. So echoing what is supposed to be the U.S. Senate's role, I think parents here have a responsibility to advise and consent. You should, as you have been doing, advise your kids about smart internet usage. Warn them about places they may wind up on the internet where they could end up seeing things that are illegal to look at. And they have to be careful not to just keep clicking through and clicking through and clicking through. They have to be careful about swapping photos for the reasons that you cite. They don't want to be brought up on charges of creating or possessing or distributing child pornography as so many other young people have been brought up on ridiculously all over the country. They also don't want to be taken advantage of by online predators, by people asking them to get on Chatterbait or whatever the current jack-off-for-me program is on the web because people have been seduced by people and convinced to sit with them and masturbate and then blackmailed with the videos that they created. And finally, and I think the most important conversation you need to have with your kid is about the pornography that they're going to encounter, the stuff that they're going to see, and you need to have a chat with them not right now, but by the time they're 13, about pornography. You need to get in between the images and their heads so that they are critical and thoughtful consumers of pornography. That what they're going to see when they look at porn is kabuki sex. It's not real life human sex. It's performance. It looks as much like sex as an action movie looks like Saturday afternoon hanging out with mom and dad, which is to say not at all. And a lot of pornography is created for people who are angry, particularly a lot of the pornography out there created for straight men. They want to look at the women that they would like to be with, but on some level, no, they can't be with because those women wouldn't be with them. And they at once desire and are furious with the person in that image. And so I think a lot of pornography is shot through with despair and anger. And you don't want your boys, if they're watching that kind of pornography, to succumb to it. You don't want them to adopt those attitudes that they will definitely see portrayed in pornography. And I'm not necessarily talking here about power exchange, BDSM, kink pornography. That sadness, despair, and rage can be detected in all sorts of different kinds of pornography, vanilla and kink. And you can also find pornography that isn't shot through with that despair, anger, and rage. 
if you look for it. But I think it's important that you not pretend to be capable of doing what you are not going to be capable of doing unless you move off the grid, which is to monitor or prevent your kids from accessing whatever the fuck they want to access by the time they're 14 or 15 years old. You need to make them risk-aware, thoughtful consumers of everything they're going to encounter on the web, including the pornography that they are definitely going to encounter on the web. Hey, Dan. I am a trans woman who grew up in Missouri, transitioned in the early 2000s, and because of my transition, I was forced out of college. My parents caught wind of it, uh, and during basically uh, the hubbub that came from it, they refused to give me their tax forms, so I couldn't continue receiving the scholarships and financial aid that I was getting, so I couldn't finish college. And it's taken me since 2001 to finally get enough resources to come back to Springfield, Missouri, and finish uh, my degree. I had 100 credit hours when I, I was forced out, so it's really only a year left, and I am going to be able to graduate, which is a huge deal for me. The thing that I'm actually calling about is the university that I am attending uh, is sending their choir to sing for Donald Trump's inauguration, and it's just heartbreaking. I feel like I have worked so hard to finally be able to come back and finish something that was taken away from me. And now I just have to get this sand kicked in my goddamn face. And I just can't believe it. And I am reaching out to everybody I can to tell them how disgusting this is and talking to as many people as I can and trying to spread the word. And I'm just, I'm just at my wit's end. I don't know what to do. Uh, honestly, part of me just wants to not finish. And I know that sounds crazy to people when I say it, but it's like, I'm going to get a degree from a university that I feel like I can't even be proud to have attended. And I'm sitting here looking at the smiling faces of all these coral kids in their portrait from the university that they have probably posted on the website. And it just makes me sick to think that I would go to classes with these jag bags who think it's okay to go sing in celebration of this asshole being inaugurated. I'm really afraid that you're, you've internalized on some level what your parents did to you. Because what I got listening to your call, and I'm 100% on your side, I'm flabbergasted that anybody would want to celebrate the inauguration of this dirtbag. But what I got from this, from your call and listening to you was you are about to do to yourself what your parents did to you when they found out that you had transitioned or were transitioning. You're sabotaging your own education. And, and I'm going to tell you right now, I called you a few days ago and I, mm -hmm. I, you know, I've been, I've been walking around with this in my shoe for a couple of days now. Um, I live in Missouri, so I'm full of euphemism. Uh, <laughs> sorry. Um, but, uh, you know, I've been I've been carrying this around for a couple of days, and I just decided, you know, like you know, fuck these guys, fuck them. I'm going to be here for a year, and they can all eat me. And I'm going to walk around, and I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to be a big piece of sand in their shoe for the next year, and I'm going to be here. Good. That's the right. And, that's the right take. 
I'm sorry to pull you out of your day for something that I already decided. No, 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 no. I'm happy to talk to you. I do want to ask you, though, like before this, before the choir agreed to go and wiggle their tongues up Donald Trump's big fat orange ass, before that happened, before your school decided to be complicit in his inauguration, you live in Missouri. You're going to school in Missouri. You had to know that there were a lot of Trump voters in Missouri. Oh, yeah. You know, I tell you, you know, I I lived here. I grew up here in Missouri and I moved to Chicago and um, I, I transitioned up there and, you know, and I. I had a great career and everything, and I saved up a buttload of money, and I uh, bought a house. I bought a condo, and I sold a condo, and I, you know, it's like I went there with nothing. I'm sorry, mm-hmm. like you don't hear my whole life story, but you know, <laughs> I, 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 I went there with nothing, and I came back with like enough to basically buy back everything that people stole from me, in That's a way. Great. And I, you know, I'm like really proud of it. And then I get back here, and I'm just like, ah. there's like this big part of me that feels like I, like I'm saying it's okay. If I'm here with these people, you know, no, you're not, you know, you're not, no, you're not. You're you, you being there with those people is a challenge to those people. You being there demonstrates that they don't rule the world, that Missouri itself is not politically, socially monolithic, that you are a part of that university's story too. And I, I expect that as there are probably many Trump voters on your campus, there are also probably many, many more People who voted against Trump. University campuses are usually big blue dots, even in red states like oh, yeah. Missouri. So you are probably in the majority. I don't know if there's a precinct by precinct voting map breakdown of where you live, but if you could go look at it, it might be a balm to your conscience around staying there and not feeling so alienated from that place. Because at least for your campus, at least for the college town you're in, you're probably in the majority of people there who supported not Donald Trump. For president. Yeah, no, and you know, I, you know, I, the thing that it drives me crazy. It's listen, I'll tell you right now. I'll work with people who voted for Donald Trump, and I mean for a better tomorrow. You know what I mean? Like, like mm-hmm. we all we all have to figure out a way. We all, we all have to figure out a way to build a bridge, to to better from here. Or we all have to start a big fist fight. Like it's one or the other. But we have to work with these people because we have to make them feel like they're like we're all together in this. But the the thing that I guess the thing that drives me crazy, I, I feel like even the people who who even the people who didn't vote for Donald Trump, like down here, they're all like, Well, this is the way it is now though, you know, we gotta we gotta, you know, toe the line for the administration that's in power now. And it's like, no. No, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I, I feel like even the blue people, a lot of them, especially the young ones, because they've never seen like what real, well, I mean, they have seen what real progress is, but it's like they haven't seen what real horribleness is. <laughs> yeah, they haven't seen what real or regress is like, because yeah, they do, they, they're, they're not old seen, enough to remember the George W. Bush administration, the George H. W. Bush administration, or the Ronald Reagan administration. They don't remember what was before it. Yeah. Exactly. You know, and, 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 and that, and that it, will that will bring them to their senses. So I wouldn't even – if I were in your shoes and like remember how long ago it was that I went to college. My college oh. campus didn't have uh, protections for queer students. There was no anti-discrimination statute at my school that, that protected students from discrimination for being queer in housing or university employment or from our professors. And yet I stuck around. And helped to change it just by fucking being there and sat on a committee to help write an anti-discrimination policy into the university conduct code, actually. So us being places as queers 
changes those places. So stay, finish your degree, keep kicking ass. And and I love that you went to Chicago, you built a life, uh, you you bought and sold a condo, you came back to where you grew up. I, I think that's really important for other people who are listening right now who may be experiencing at the moment what you experienced when you were outed or came out to your parents about transitioning who are being thrown out, who are being cut off. I think it's really great to hear that from you so that these other kids know that they can stay and they can build a life that they can get out there and, and, and find their people and find a path and not all is despair and loss as proven by your own experience. Well, thanks, Dan. I know. Um, thank you. I mean, thanks for calling. I thank you for calling. I, um, You're welcome. I'm really glad that I, in sorry. the time it took me to call you back, you decided not to drop out because that's what I was going to tell you. you. Know, Please don't do to yourself what your parents did. Please don't finish the job. And I'm really glad to hear that you arrived at that before I even got you on the phone. No, yeah, I like. I, I don't know. Like, I, I, I'm so close, and if I, if I. I'm the first person my family ever go to college, and I just it's it's a big like it it's the goal. It's like the thing that I, I quit drinking a couple of years ago. It's the thing that used to I used to drink and I used to sit around crying about it, you know. Mm-hmm. And I I, I got to finish this, but it's just it's just so hard to be. I went and I went and talked to the, the choir director yesterday. Good, that's great. And I, and I told, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, they they all like. I've never, I've never heard people, um, like whitewash something that they're doing so easily. And just like, there's like a cognitive, like, like hurdle that they've all built for themselves. They're like, we're, we're just going to the inauguration. We're not there for Donald Trump. It's like, you guys, they're all like normalizing this bullshit. Right. And they don't understand that that's what they're doing. And it's like. But you, you by going there and confronting them, you by getting in their face, you by reaching out, you're doing your part to denormalize something in their heads. You're, you're, you're introducing some doubt. You're, you're, you're putting contention on the table and and that's great. And that's what you can do. And sometimes people say, you know, I, you know, I reached out, uh, I fought, I screamed and yelled, but nothing changed and I'm at my wits end. And that's, not the way you should look at screaming and yelling and throwing a fit um, because sometimes there's not an immediate payoff. Sometimes, you, you know, you protest yeah. a particular thing that you find objectionable and injustice and there's no change. You know, it didn't, you know, it didn't end that particular injustice. It didn't prevent the choir from going to Washington to moo at Donald Trump's inauguration. But who knows the impact that your words are going to have on that choir director in the future? Who knows what the stink that you raised might prevent happening down the road or the change it might make in people's consciousness, consciousnesses down the road. So the, the, the stink that you raised is valuable all by itself. Even if the change that you wanted didn't come to pass. Okay. Okay. So props okay. to you. Props to you. Please get your degree. Please stay. Don't leave. Okay. Thank your, pres- you. your presence makes that campus a better and more just place, regardless of what this fucking choir is about to do. And your absence, absenting yourself from it, hurts you and hurts that campus and makes it a lesser place. Don't go. Okay. 
Good luck. Okay. And, thank and, you. And, congr- thank you so and congratulations. It's so, I hear from so many kids who are often in that first stage of parents throwing them out, parents cutting them off. It's so great to hear from somebody uh, who lived that and is on the other side of it and, and came through. That That's a real balm for my soul. One of my favorite It Gets Better videos was this woman who said, uh, it doesn't get better. What happens is you get stronger. I really think that's true. Thank you, Dan. Take care. You too. Bye. Hi, Dan. I'm a longtime listener, first-time caller, a 20-year-old bisexual female um, from the Southwest. So I'm calling in response to a lady who said she was extremely happy and excited to be out to her family because of the advice she heard on your show. And I guess I had a similar situation recently on Christmas Eve. I was out to dinner with my family and I was kind of outed by my mom. I've been dating a, uh, a guy for two and a half years so I could easily pass as straight. And my family is extremely conservative Christian. So I've always kind of just preferred to uh, pretend I'm straight and kind of just go with that until I'm at least more comfortable talking about it. But basically, I um, I had a hickey on my neck, and my mom basically asked, you know, is that from a guy or a girl? And immediately, my face turned extremely red, and I was so just taken aback. Like, how how did she know? What you know? What the heck? Kind of. And I looked at my sister, who knows. She was kind of like, no, I didn't tell her. Now, my mom had had a few drinks. But she proceeded to kind of ask some pretty insensitive questions, such as, uh, is this why your boyfriend broke up with you? Because me and my boyfriend recently broke up. Do you just have sex with anyone? Um, I don't understand the difference between, you know, having like a strong friendship connection and a sexual connection or or romantic, I guess. It was just a lot of insensitive questions and it left me reeling and kind of confused and just like, sad because I knew that this was not a conversation I was anywhere ready to have with my mom for the next, you know, five-ish years. And unlike the caller that said she felt empowered, I felt sad and confused and now really awkward between my mom and I. So um, just any thoughts? So just to be clear, you didn't come out to your mother at any point. Your mother accidentally tricked a you into outing yourself or a physiological response that you weren't in control of the blushing when she said, is it a hickey from a guy or a girl outed you and partly, and then the look to your sister who said, I didn't tell her finished the job and outed you entirely. That's how this played out. Oh, I'm sorry. You came out to your parents. You came out to your mother. You came out on Christmas or Christmas Eve at dinner, probably with other family around without intending to, it's a comedy of coming out, errors and you weren't ready for it. So then of course you weren't ready for your half drunk, religiously conservative mother to start peppering you with questions about bisexuality, but you are out now and your mother has questions and it's your job to answer them. And they're going to be by design. Almost always those questions that you're going to get from your parents when you come out to them are going to be insensitive. And if you're not ready to answer them right now, you can tell your mother that you're just not ready to answer them right now. And you can hand her a stack of books. Google books about bisexuality and you will find all sorts of great lists online of recommended reading on bisexuality. And you can get your mother a couple of books, tell her to read them, read the same book yourself and have a chat with your mother and game out some responses to her questions. When she says, do you have sex with anyone because you have sex with 
men and women, you can look at her and say, do you have sex with any man? Do you have sex with all men? Every man you see, mom, you want to fuck? Sometimes it helps to be as blunt and insulting and insensitive as the person asking the question is being because it rubs their noses and how ridiculously idiotic and insensitive their own question is. How do you tell the difference between a friendship connection and a sexual connection? Mom, you have friends who are guys. Presuming your mom has some friends who are guys. How did you tell the difference between whether you wanted to be their friends or suck their cocks? When did that realization dawn on you, mom? Pretty early. You know the people that you're actually attracted to versus the people that you're not attracted to. That there's something ephemeral there. There's that spark of attraction and it exists or it kind of doesn't exist. And it doesn't exist for everybody who nominally falls into the group of people gender-wise that you are attracted to. Otherwise, you would be sucking all the dicks, mom. And you're not sucking all the dicks. You're just sucking dad's dick. You might want to translate that into language that's more appropriate for your particular mother. That's how I would have put it and in some ways did put things to my mother. But we had a relationship where we could be that blunt and sarcastic with each other. If you don't have that kind of relationship with your mother, you can rephrase my answers in such a way that they are your mom appropriate. But brace yourself. You will have to answer questions. You have to parent your parents when you come out to your parents. What do parents do for years when you're a kid? They answer so many goddamned questions. Kids are full of questions. Sometimes it's fucking annoying. It's a cliche for parents to complain about their toddlers asking them question after question after question. Well, come out to your parents and they turn into toddlers. And you're going to have to answer a lot of their questions a little sooner than you had hoped to. That's why I recommend you get a book or two. Have a little bisexual book club with mom. Read a couple of books and discuss them. Hey, Dad. My name is Matt. I have a question. Uh, I was dating a woman. She's 36 and I am, gosh, I'm 24. We had a really good first date and we were smooching by the end of it, uh, which was great. Then I went uh, back to my home state for the holidays and when I came back, I shot her a text and uh, she said she was not interested in seeing me again. Uh, what should I do here? I really uh, want to get to know this woman better, and she definitely was not arguing uh, when my tongue was in her mouth. Dude, she doesn't want to see you again. She doesn't want your tongue in her mouth again, and that's it. It's over. It wasn't even anything, but it's over. Whatever it was, the minor thing that it was is now no longer a thing. And who knows why? She has reasons. You're too young for her. Maybe she didn't like the taste of your spit. Maybe she has a parasitic twin and she doesn't think she can trust you to be discreet after the big reveal. Who knows? You don't. I don't. The only person who knows is this woman and she's not saying. Why did she let you kiss her then? You say that she seemed to like your tongue in her mouth. Well, you can't know that. You can't know that she actually liked it. Women will sometimes, when they're on a date with a guy, engage in a kind of passive resistance. They will deflect because they've been socialized to always maybe protect the guy's ego first and foremost. Sometimes women deflect and smile and laugh and seem to be having a good time because they're afraid of how the guy might react if she just says, you know, I'm not feeling it and no, and I'm going home. And so a, a woman who's engaged in that kind of passive resistance, deflecting behavior is with a guy who makes a move and wants to kiss her. And rather than put her hand over his mouth and say, yeah, not feeling it. She 
kisses him for a few minutes just to give him that as she eases him out the door because she has an early flight tomorrow or there's some conflict. She has to go. And it's easier just to kiss the dude for a few minutes and extract yourself from the situation without a confrontation, without having to say no, without having to bruise the guy's ego. But she might have done that because she feared you wouldn't be able to hear the word no. And maybe if that's what went down, she was right to fear that because here you are, you've heard the word no, and you're not accepting her no. So it's possible she kissed you in that moment. It's possible that she seemed to like your tongue in her mouth, but didn't like your tongue in her mouth and didn't really want to kiss you in that moment. But she worried that she was with a guy who wouldn't take no for an answer in that moment. So she gave him a little bit of a fake yes to get him out of the apartment. So that then via email or a phone call, she could give him the no from a distance that she feared giving him up close. But now you've got your no. It's no. And that's your cue not to game this out, not to call me. That's your cue to go away. That's your cue to go find some other girl who actually does want your tongue in her mouth. Hi, Dan and uh, Tech Savvy at Rescue. Um, I'm a 25-year-old bisexual female living in Florida, Um, and I have a question about polyamory. So I have been a quite ethical slut for the last three years. I love being slutty. I just, I love having multiple partners, but I am really ready you have a partner, like a primary partner. Like I want, I want a person that's my person, um, and that's really important to me. And I'm having trouble getting men to stick around. I find that men are either really open to my polyamory and are polyamorous in nature themselves, but don't want to be my primary partner. Or I totally freak them out with it. I try to drop it slowly, but it usually eventually comes out and it's something that they really don't understand. I just want to know any ideas that you have on how to approach the finding a primary long-term partner thing. Um, I'd like to open up the relationship after maybe a few years. Uh, but I am open to being quote-unquote monogamous with someone for a few years before opening up the relationship. Joining me in the studio to help tackle this poly question, Cunning Minx, creator and host of the wildly popular Poly Weekly podcast, the nation's longest-running poly podcast. She has been called the Terry Gross of polyamory, which seems to me perhaps unfair to Terry Gross because for all we know... She could be polyamorous. We don't know. So a lot of people out there, particularly people in opposite sex relationships, particularly straight identified people, are not open about being non-monogamous. So we shouldn't make any assumptions about Terry Gross. Terry Gross could be the Terry Gross of polyamory for all we know. That's true. But she doesn't talk about it publicly if she is. So you, for now, are the Terry Gross of polyamory. I'll take that title. <laughs> Thanks for coming in. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So you've been hosting the Poly Weekly podcast for 10 years And I'm a listener, and I have listened to many shows. I didn't realize until we spoke 
that you do this in Seattle, that you're Seattle-based. How can you have been doing the Poly Weekly podcast in Seattle for 10 years, and I've been doing the Savage Lovecast for seven or eight, and we've never been in the same room before? Well, to be fair, I have only lived in Seattle for seven years. I started When I started the podcast, I was in Chicago. Oh, So wow. there's that. I didn't so, know there were poly people in Chicago. <laughs> I thought it was too Catholic. There are poly people everywhere. No way. No, there are gay people everywhere. <laughs> That's our slogan. That's our, we had that trademarked in the 60s, lady. We are hiding next door to you, looking completely <laughs> normal. So how long have you been poly before we get to the question? I have been poly for about a year longer than I have been doing the podcast because I started the podcast because our first year or two of poly was so laden with drama and we were so confused. We spent, I think I must have spent like 30 hours a week working on the relationship. I think that's one of the things that scares people about polyamory. You sometimes hear poly people talking about not just the drama, but the emotional investment, the communication that is required. Sometimes when people have multiple uh, partners, more than just one other, the scheduling, <laughs> the spreadsheet you need to make sure everybody's getting their quote-unquote date nights in. Uh, people find that intimidating about poly. Your long-term poly practitioner, does that become less daunting with time? Do you get better at that? Is that a skill? Well, if it sounds daunting and horrible and nightmarish to you, then that probably means that you probably shouldn't be poly. If it's if it sounds like too much work, it probably would be for you. I don't you. know, because when I was 13, being gay sounded pretty nightmarish to me. I'm glad I <laughs> dived in anyway. Well, we're all glad you dived in, too. <laughs> yeah, I mean, think about the first relationship you ever had when you were a teenager, right? There was a lot of drama. It hurt like hell, most likely, most of the times. Everything, you were experiencing it for the first time, so everything hurt like hell. It was very confusing. You spent a lot of energy on it. It was very confusing because no matter how hard I pretended, she did not turn into Andy Gibb ever. Oh, yeah, that's tough. My first that's relationship. Tough. I was very I'm disappointed so in her. Like I kept I'm wishing. Sorry. And you put so much energy into it. Kept throwing it. coins into the Chicago River and wishing she would turn into Andy Gibb. It never <laughs> fucking happened. Everybody out there, go Google Andy Gibb and you'll see what I'm talking about. We don't need to Google Andy Gibb. A, a lot of people. Need, I, I, I toss that out sometimes at colleges and I get a, a, a thousand blanks. Well, stares. at colleges, of course. Yeah, well, a lot of my listeners are young. That's true. So uh, short answer is yes. Like anything else that you apply yourself to, it does get much easier over time. My Google Calendar is reasonably easy to manage at this point. Can I pin you down on something that I sometimes get in trouble for? Uh -huh. um, and maybe I'll get you in trouble for it right now, too. You oh, said sure. you've been poly for 11 years. Some people argue that polyamory is a sexual orientation. I have gotten into trouble for stating that I believe that polyamory is a relationship model. I believe everybody is fundamentally not monogamous. I don't think monogamy comes naturally. So I think perhaps polyamory is a or a desire for multiple partners, at least, is uh, our setting as the kind of primates we are. Um, but I get in trouble for saying that polyamory is a relationship model, just like monogamy is a relationship model. I don't think it's a sexual orientation or an identity. And you just said you've been poly for 11 years, not poly your entire life. So yeah. where do you fall on the debate <laughs> with sexual orientation versus relationship model? Well, I think it, it varies on the person. I'm a big believer that each person gets to determine their own sexual identity. And if they determine that polyamory is part of their sexual identity, I have many friends that feel that they have always been hardwired to poly and they feel they were born this way and every time they tried not to be polyamorous, they were completely miserable. Mm -hmm. And that is their truth and I absolutely believe that that is the case for them. For me, it was really – I have to admit, so from a young age, I was probably the only girl who fantasized about meeting some handsome prince who like swept me off my feet to Paris 
and then met another handsome prince in Paris. And I could never figure out how to end the story because <laughs> that's not how there's fairy some, tales ended. There's and not I was one like, fucking prince out there. You don't have to pick. You can have as many princes oh, as you okay. can Okay, and then there's another one. And then I just, I couldn't <laughs> make the fairy tale How many little royal houses work. are there kicking around Europe <laughs> these days? Scads. Oh, I'm sure they're pretty, or you know, rich CEO, whatever, right? Cowboy, I don't know, whatever. Um, so I've always had that openness in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, For me, it's more of a relationship orientation. I've always been – I feel like I've always been open to the idea, but I didn't actually practice poly until I met Great Answer many years ago and we stumbled through our first painful poly relationship together, bless his heart. Is it always painful, that first poly relationship? Are there mistakes that everybody makes out of the gate when they're uh, moving into polyamory that if they knew about them, they might be – able to avoid them? Anything you could flag for people? Oh, yes, definitely. Read my book, Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory Before I Tried It and Fracked It Up. <laughs> is that literally the title of the book? That is literally the oh title God, of the book. Oh, that's a great title. I get in trouble with my publishers because I always have these really long subtitles, but that's even longer than my subtitles. Well, the official title is Eight Things I Wish I'd Known About Polyamory and, and I, then the subtitle, right? which read. is still way too long. Yeah. But um, so flag one of them for us. What's one thing that people who are going into it who haven't yet read your book need to know? It might be helpful to know. You are going to change and your relationship is going to change. Everything that you think it's going to be, everything that you picture, it's probably not going to be. It'll most likely be awesome and mm-hmm. better. But just because you picture things a certain way doesn't mean that that's how they're going to end up. And you need to be open. Like you can picture being spit roasted by a couple of princes, but maybe that's <laughs> there not what you're going to get in the end. Exactly. <laughs> well, a lot of times people go in saying, okay, we need to clamp down on the structure. It's gonna, the structure is going to look like this. Well, and you know, maybe they say you are or aren't allowed to fall in love or mm-hmm. you are, and are, are or are not allowed, in quotes, to have a specific type of sex with a specific type of person. And – the truth is that we're human beings, right? And I think those rules, though, a lot of people yeah. – I've written about this. A lot of people who are moving into polyamory will establish what can seem like constraining or even arbitrary rules. And I actually think they're tests. It's a way of the person seeing that, okay – and I don't think this is a conscious choice that people mm-hmm. make or something they could unpack uh, or articulate. But they'll throw down these seemingly arbitrary rules about not in our house or not in our bed or not this position or not this kind of sex, yeah. uh, not this kind of person. And yeah. they want to see that their partner – puts them first if it's a primary, uh, you know, a couple that's going to regard each other as their primaries as opposed to everybody's equal. And they want to see that their feelings and needs are going to be prioritized and taken into consideration and that your partner will respect the rules. And then over time, people then seem to uh, loosen up about those rules or even withdraw some once they see that their partner can hew to them. Or discover that they don't do what you think they're going to do, mm-hmm. which is my issue with rules. Generally, rules like – You don't think there should be any rules? Uh, I think that you sh- – I think that if you don't trust your partner to um, prioritize their happiness and your happiness and and the health of the relationship, then you probably shouldn't be trying folly. What about if your partner is dating somebody that you despise? That's always a tough one. And that's really, really difficult. Um. I Do you trust your partner to not inflict that person on you? Do you trust your partner to put you first and break up with that person if you can't stand them? And So here's my take on this. I'm a big fan of establishing your own boundaries instead of establishing rules that are designed to control somebody else's behavior. Because mm-hmm. the rules that you set down to protect your relationship or control somebody else's behavior, 
they never do. They just never end up doing what you think they're going to do. And usually they just end up causing more grief, more pain. And ultimately, it's not unusual for the whole big poly mess to explode. However, because the rules can be a minefield, you can be putting laying landmines all over a field and exactly walking through it and the odds that someone's going to step on one of those landmines. Yeah. If the rule is, okay, you can have all the sex you want, but don't fall in love. Well, we don't really control who we fall in love with. I mean, you control, control your actions. You can say, I'm in love, but I'm not going to do anything about it. But then you're putting your partner and your metamor in a completely untenable situation. That's just not something that human beings deal well with. Define metamor for people who just went with Metamor is your partner's partner with whom you do not have a sexual or romantic relationship. What if the rule is you can't fall in love with anybody, but if you do fall in love with somebody, you have to murder that person? <laughs> is that a reasonable request? Um, I would call that request fairly unreasonable. <laughs> All right. I thought but you might. I, I truly am a fan of establishing your own boundaries. So let's talk this first. So let's leap to this first question. Uh, she wants a primary partner and she's dating in polyland and can't find a poly guy who'll stick around. And when she dates uh, poly muggles, they freak out and run. So basically what she wants us to do is tell her how to find the exact perfect partner of her dreams. Easy peasy. Yeah, right. And <laughs> she's shocked that at 25 she hasn't landed this person it, yet. Well, it's not any easier for um, – polyamorous people than it is for monogamous people. I guess the first thing I would say is please, for God's sake, date your species. Do not date monogamous <laughs> people. That is specious <laughs> of you. I am dating a pit bull right now. I'm in a polyamorous relationship with my husband and a pit bull and it's a beautiful thing. As long as you're both consenting adults, that's fine. I'm not dating a pit bull. Please go on. Please date your species. Please do not go into the monogamous world and then try to hide your polyamory and then convince people to the joys of polyamory. Um, I, I think polyevangelism doesn't really work very well that day, that way. Um, I recommend that you date within the poly pool. There are, uh, let's but see. But what she's she, asking she, is somebody to be monogamous for three-ish years well, before no, she, opening it up. She says she wants to date someone and then eventually open up, which is frankly how I do poly relationships. When I date somebody new, mm -hmm. I need some time, usually months or years, to focus on that relationship and kind of – figure it out, wade through it, kind of figure out how it works. I don't date, start dating two new people at the same time. I can't handle it personally. Mm -hmm. So basically she's saying, yeah, I want to have a, I will use the term core relationship or an anchor relationship instead of primary partner because I'm not a fan of hierarchies. Um, so when you're trying to do that, you need to fish in the poly pool. Mm -hmm. You need to fish in the pool where people who are going to be willing to open up their relationship after a couple of years already are. And all you need to do is Google the word polyamory and the name of your city or area. I happen to know there are a lot of poly communities in Florida where she mentioned she's from. I want to so meet square, other poly folks. How do I square your advice for her with what I know of so many people in polyamorous relationships, which is it was a monogamous relationship and one person initiated a conversation about opening it up. And that's how they moved into polyamory. And sometimes the person who wasn't their idea was reluctant and resistant and is now happily polyamorous. So how do I square your advice to date your species, date in the poly pool if you want to play a relationship with so many of the people I know who are in poly relationships were previously monogamous? Well, she's actually going a step beyond that, right? So she's not already in an existing monogamous relationship. And it seems like she's putting herself in for a lot of grief and heartache and a hell of a lot of extra drama and work because first she has to find the monogamous relationship, nurture the monogamous relationship, get the monogamous relationship to the point where it could be considered a core relationship and then 
you know, theoretically open it up to Polly, would it make more sense to date somebody that you know would already be open to the idea? I mean, she's not already in a relationship, so mm-hmm. this is a good opportunity to start from scratch. Now, that being said, yes, if you're in a monogamous relationship, there's plenty of people who are in monogamous couples and who want to open up, and they have varying levels of success with that. Yes, Dan, I'm a male from the Midwest, and uh, we just I was in a polyamorous relationship for about two or three years, and we recently, me and my girlfriend recently broke up, but her and her boyfriend are still together, and we all live together, which has been kind of weird. But uh, I was just wondering, uh, how long should I wait before possibly bringing another partner that I've met home, stay overnight, or what have you? Uh, any advice would be really appreciated. Thank you. So he'd like us to tell him what the rule is here. I think he might be asking the wrong people. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big fan of rules, but I, I'm, I'm a little confused. So is he asking us because he doesn't know when is the right time to bring a girl home, like after one date or three dates or ten dates? I think or is it because about, he's worried about the reaction? He's worried about the reaction he might get from his former partners who are fucking like crazy in the house they all share. Right. So this is a tricky situation, and he's not the only person to be in it. I know many people – some, not all of whom are poly, who are living in a home with previous partners due to financial and legal concerns. So, so this is like any other question that you need to negotiate with people that you're in intimate relationships with, even though you're not still having sex, presumably with them. The first thing is you figure out what you want. What do you want to do um, with this girl or with the, any other girl? And then sit down, have a talk with them and say, look, this is what I want. What would you be comfortable with? And wonder of wonders, you negotiate from there like grownups. But what if their response is, okay, we all used to fuck. We all used to be in a relationship. We all used to be poly. Now it's just the two of us and you're outside it. And we just wouldn't be comfortable with you bringing anybody into your living space, into your bedroom, into the house that you pay rent to live in and you help uh, maintain the household. You, We can fuck and we can do what we want, but you can't fuck or do what you want. That just seems – Crazy. I, I think he should go into that meeting and say, I am dating someone. I am going to be bringing this person home. Heads up. Not mother may I. That would be my advice. <laughs> well, I find I'm generally not a fan of confrontation myself. So I find that things tend to go much better when you state start from a position of, look, here's what I want. Tell me what you want and let's see if we can figure out something that's in between the two. Maybe they have legitimate concerns. You can fuck on the roof. Yeah. You can fuck in the garage. You just or, can't fuck in the house. And for that matter, even if they do decide together collectively, because I believe that everybody in the relationship has agency, gets to say what they want and be treated with respect. So That's where we differ. He may decide. <laughs> there I you just go. don't think everyone gets to have agency and I don't I mean, treat anybody with respect. And he may decide that even though they all agree that, okay, it's okay for you to bring somebody home as long as, you know, and there's, you know, reasonable restrictions placed and, and everybody agrees to it, fine. But there are also alternatives. You could go to her place, you could get an Airbnb, or you could do the good old fashioned making out in a parked car if that works for you. Um, but if you have space, I mean, I personally think you should be entitled to do whatever you want in your space as long as it is legal. So meth lab, no. Sex with a girlfriend, yes. And you should be able to negotiate that. Hey, uh, my name's Layla, and uh, I'm calling for a question for Dan. Um, I recently found myself into a new type of relationship, and I know you kind of talk about being monogamish on the show a bit. Basically, I ended up with a guy who's very interested in 
uh, polyamory, for which uh, I had not experienced in the past, but I've always had an interest. And and for me, it was always something I did have an interest in. Um, I never got to pursue. And for both of the relationships I had previously uh, brought that up in, I had actually, I had thought I loved those people at the time, but I just, I really, I was not in love. And so when I met this guy, I was like, wow, you know, this is great. I don't really believe in love anyway. Um, and that's really not the definition of polyamory. So I don't mean to insult anyone when I say that. But, you know, it's like, I just believe you can be more fulfilled by multiple people than by one person. And now that I've met him and we've been dating um, since the end of July, so not that long, I found myself was just like madly in love with him, like this stupid sort of movie type of love where I'm not romanticizing him in any way, shape or form. It's just like a really good fit. And I actually do feel that all of my needs are finally met by one person. So I guess my question for you in regards to this is, um, you know, I know you've kind of had at least sexually open relationships. Um, if you've ever run into this type of situation and really how you would recommend, um, I have been conversing with him uh, about this, but I'm just kind of curious, um, you know, if you've talked to people or you know people who have maybe experienced this sudden change of mind um, and whether what your personal opinion is about love and fulfillment um, in terms of polyamory, I'm just kind of interested to hear. So I'm a little unclear on what she seems to be asking. What I'm hearing is that she's been what we call PIP, Polly in principle, thought Polly was a great idea, self-identified as Polly, and then she met somebody that she felt she wanted to be monogamous with. So is it an either-or question? Like, is it, Basically, is it okay, oh, okay to be monogamous is what I'm getting from this. And she's also reading into this, I feel so strongly about this guy that perhaps I was interested in Polly previously because I'd never met anyone I was truly in love with, and perhaps monogamy and true love go hand in hand. Yeah, there's a little bit of that implication there, uh, to which I would say the same thing I say to everybody, monogamous, polyamorous, or otherwise, please do not make any major life decisions when you're in the midst of new relationship energy, NRE. That's an acronym that people see tossed around on poly boards a lot. Exactly. You're in love. Your brain is awash in these fabulous chemicals that make you feel amazing, and you should totally enjoy it. Have fun with your NRE, but for God's sake, don't pack up the U-Haul and please do not make major life decisions. I've had people who moved across the city, state, or country to be with a new person in the midst of NRE and live to regret it. So don't make any major life decisions right this second. What do you hope is left behind when the NRE burns off like a fog? Well, this is the thing. What's the best case scenario? People can be fluid in their relationship orientations, just as many people can be fluid in their gender or sexual orientations. I've seen cases where monogamous people um, ended up embracing polyamory for because of some of the conditions that life threw at them, and it, they never thought they'd be poly, and it ended up working out very well for them. Mm-hmm. And vice versa, I've seen diehard poly people go to what is essentially what looks from the outside like a monogamous configuration for a period of time. Or for a long period of time because that's what worked for them. Uh, This is why I want to emphasize that polyamory, monogamy, that these are relationship models. And in a way that supports your argument that uh, the relationship model that works for you that perhaps you identify with, that that can be fluid. There may be times in your life when monogamy 
feels right and works and is what you should do, perhaps you shouldn't identify as monogamous eternally because you may feel differently in five years or 10 years, or life may throw circumstances at you that cause you to really reevaluate health crises, um, major life changes, being separated by, by work or family obligations uh, for long periods of time. And then other people coming into your life that you can incorporate. Like, I just feel like people shouldn't lock themselves down. People shouldn't say, I'm this or I'm that when it comes to relationship models because you don't know who you'll be in five or six years. I am being monogamous to me seems like a better way to say it than I am monogamous. I am shaking my finger at you. Okay. What did I get wrong? Right here. (laughs) (laughs) For those of you listening along at home, I'm getting wagged at. He is. Um, Because I think each person has the right to self-identify self-identify in the way that they choose whether and that I self-identify as a person who doesn't believe that each person has a right to self-identify. Okay. Is that all right? I respect that. <laughs> I think that if somebody says I'm not gay but I sleep with men, good for you. If somebody identifies as polyamorous and they have no partners or one partner, good for them. I don't get to tell anybody else what their orientation is in terms of relationships or sexuality or politics or anything else. Paul Ryan identifies as a human being, and I'm not with well, that. I'm not down. Donald Trump identifies okay, now as you're a really, next now you're really challenging States, me. and I'm not down. <laughs> okay. All right. You got a good point on both of those. Ted yeah. Cruz identifies okay. as a Christian, and he doesn't resemble any of the Christians I grew up around. Okay. Now you're really getting into some somebody <laughs> waters. Okay. All right. Good point. But no, your argument totally works but, for the relationship model. I'm being unfair in throwing politics into the mix. Well, and and the truth is she's just trying to figure out what to call herself. And a lot of people do that. I mean, half the email I get is somebody calling in or writing in, giving me a couple of paragraphs about their life and saying, am I poly or not? And I'm always thinking, why are you asking me? Like, you get to decide if you're poly. If you want to call yourself poly, great. I had a friend who, even though she uh, had many, many wonderful experiences with women, refused to self-identify as bisexual because it carried some very negative connotations for her. Mm-hmm. So she would she ultimately decided to call herself, I think it was polykinkerous, right? Because the person who dies with the most syllables <laughs> in their sexual gender identification <laughs> string wins. <laughs> exactly. But it worked for her. That's a thing. So if there is not a word for the thing that you are, then make one the fuck up. That's how I came up with booby sexual for me. Booby sexual. Booby sexual. I, I, I really like cock. Mm-hmm. Primarily into men. Not too much into women below the waist, much like you. But <laughs> I am very much into boobs. Like I just – I really love – like burying my face in them. I love squishing them. I love big booby hugs. I'm just really into women's boobs. Cunning Minx, creator of the Poly Weekly podcast, which has been running for 10 years now. You are a great, great grandparent in the podcast world. I'm the pod mother. Thank you Poly podcasting. You, thank you for coming in. Would you please come in again. Absolutely. I would be happy to. And where can people find the Poly Weekly podcast? Polyweekly.com where you have all our archives, or you can just search for Polyamory or Polyweekly on iTunes or whatever your podcatcher is. Do you give advice on your show? (laughs) A lot of advice. I'm not sure it's all very good. There were competitors (laughs) in this advice racket. A little bit. A little bit. Do you listen to my show? I do. Mm. Do you think my advice for poly people generally sucks? I have have disagreed with you. I have disagreed with me too. On some of the instances. (laughs) There are times when I listen to an old show or I read an old call and I'm like, oh, that, why would I say that? Yeah. Why been, was I that day? There have been times when I was listening with a friend and we're all like, yeah, yeah, that was really good advice. Yeah, that was good. And others where we're like, no, don't tell her that. So <laughs> par for the core. I think, you know, 80% agreement. That's oh, yeah, not too great. bad. Hi, Dan. Um, I'm 
32-year-old uh, woman, straight woman living in the South. Um, I just got into a new relationship. It's only like a couple of weeks old. And um, I'm actually really, really enjoying seeing this guy. He is different from like any other person I've ever dated or was married to. He is different physically, different um, just emotionally. And it's been actually really refreshing and great. The only problem so far is that his house is a fucking disaster. Um, on New Year's Eve, we hung out and I went back to his place and he had been telling me like, oh, I own my own house. And he drives like a really nice brand new car. So I was like, oh, this will be cool. And the other thing is he lives, I, we live in a major metro, near a major metro Atlanta city. He actually lives um, kind of downtown. I live just outside of the city. And I have stuff that I do downtown, but my work is, is just outside of the city. And so it's actually really convenient that he lives downtown because I'm downtown. I can just spend the night with him. But anyway, when I when we went to his house, we drove up and it was a complete shithole. And then we went inside and it was an even shittier shithole. I mean, like there's just shit everywhere. I know that he's had, he owns the house. Um, it belonged to his family. And so it's been there for a while. There's just like a lot of junk in the house. Like I even had a hard time telling like whether or not he can use the kitchen. Um, his room is in a pretty bad shape. He's got, you know, instead of curtains, he's got blankets up on the wall. His bathroom is really gross. And the th- I like he kind of lives this bachelor lifestyle. He lives with another dude. There was another roommate who just got married. He's moving out. And he was like, oh, all this stuff is his. It's not all that one dude. Um, there's just too much stuff. I think that he's just kind of let things go because he's been single. But the thing is, he's 36. I kind of feel like he should have this shit together a little bit. And so I really want to keep seeing him. I really want to keep um, having sex with him. I really want to keep hanging out with him because I actually think this is turning into something really good. But I don't want to go over to his house. It's so gross. And my house is way far away from all the stuff that we want to do. I don't know what to do. It's new. I don't know how to bring this up with him. I want to offer to help. I will totally offer to help uh, clean it up. But I don't know how to approach this without offending him so early on in the relationship. Any thoughts that would help. Thank you. I went on a couple of dates once with a guy, not just a couple of dates. We fucked around a couple of times at my place. And then I went to his place with him for the first time to spend the night and walked in and it looked like what you describe encountering when you walked into this guy that you've been seeing into his place. Junk everywhere, sink full of dishes covered in mold and crap, newspapers, papers, everywhere. And then... The last straw went into the bathroom and lifted the lid on the toilet to take a piss. And there was mold growing all over the inside of the toilet. Not just the little ring at the water line from a toilet that's not washed, from a toilet that's not scrubbed often enough, but this barrier reef of coral, God knows what the fuck it was, growing in his toilet all along that ring. It was disgusting. I did not spend the night. I made my excuses and I never saw the guy again. So I feel like I might not be the best person to offer you advice if your hope is to continue to see this slob because there's a level of filthiness and hoarderiness that if you're going to be this person's life partner, you're going to have to take complete responsibility for and the forces of entropy are strong and he will pull you down because forces of entropy are strong and Things tack toward chaos and disorder and it takes will and commitment and consistency to keep a house in some relative semblance of order and cleanliness. 
So if you want to date this guy, if you want to risk being this guy's life partner, if you want to risk being the spouse on an episode of Hoarders, and not the hoarder on an episode of Hoarders, but the spouse of the hoarder on an episode of Hoarders, the only way I think that's even possible, the only way I think you can even contemplate it is if this is the kind of guy you can have a direct and straightforward conversation with about your concerns, that you can stand in his apartment or his house and say, this is a fucking pigsty. I can't believe you live like this. I will not live like this. If we are going to get serious about each other, you're going to have to get serious about not living like this, whatever form that takes. I am not going to be your domestic staff. I am not going to clean up after you. If he owns a house in the middle of the city. He's got a little money set aside. He could hire some people to help muck out his living quarters and then hire someone to come by once a week or every couple of weeks to help clean it all up again. That person ain't going to be you. And then gauge his reaction. If he doesn't see the problem, run. If he looks around and suddenly sees his living quarters through your eyes and recognizes the problem and then addresses it in part to earn your affections and continued attentions and presence in his life and pussy on his face, then maybe you can continue to see this guy. But you should make your presence conditioned upon improvement, continued improvement, sustained improvement in this area, especially if you're going to ever live together because you do not want to live like this. And right now you are in the infatuation stage and you are viewing this mess through that lens. That infatuation stage burns off and you will be left with the mess in the end and resentment and anger and an engine of confrontation that can go and go and go forever at the heart of your relationship. He changes or you bolt. Hi, Dan. Huge fan of yours. My name is Jesse, heterosexual, 30-something. I just broke it off with my, uh, well, now ex of two years. Uh, we've broken up a couple of times, but he has always tried to win me back. But in the course of the relationship, he's extremely possessive. He thinks that I am constantly looking for male attention. Mind you, I'm a musician, also a burlesque dancer, and he questions whether I do what I do for male attention, not for the fact that I love it. And he's extremely, extremely, extremely possessive. And uh, I see all of this outside of the relationship. But uh, when I see him, I feel like we can all work it out. But uh he puts all the blame on me saying that uh, I am um, insecure and bad at communication and uh, also hates my relationship with my family, which I'm very close with them, and he's not very close with his. Uh, so I don't know what to do. I broke it off, but he's still calling me, constantly saying that we can work it out if I get better at not seeking male attention and not uh, being, um, out there in the public as much. Um, and that's it. I, I would like your advice. I, I know that you'll probably say that I should dump him, but I still feel a pull for him. And maybe, maybe it is me. Maybe I do need to back off a little bit on everything, but that's, I don't know. I'm confused. 
How many red flags before it's a May Day parade? Because we are in May Day parade territory here. Working backwards, isolating you from your family, possessive, jealous, controlling in a fucking crazy way. These accusations of you seeking malattention and the relationship would work if you would just stay home, wear a burqa, never leave the house. If you would just not seek malattention and who gets to decide what is or isn't you seeking malattention? He gets to decide that. And why would a guy who feels the way that he does about a woman, about being with a woman, about having a girlfriend who seeks malattention, why would that guy date a woman who's a musician and a burlesque dancer? He would date that woman so that he could beat that woman up about it, so that he could emotionally abuse that woman. He didn't pick you despite the fact that you are a burlesque dancer and a musician, that you are someone who basks in attention, who needs attention from men and women, from others. He didn't pick you despite those qualities. He picked you for those qualities so that he could mau-mau you about them, so he could beat the shit out of you emotionally about them, so he could break up with you about them. That's the lever that he – that is – that's the pressure point where he wants to assert his control over you. And if you stop doing burlesque, he wins. His little control boner gets harder. If you stop being a musician, performing in public, his little control boner gets a little harder still. And then you know what he's going to do? He's going to find something else that you're doing that amounts to, quote unquote, seeking malattention and fault you for that and beat you up emotionally about that. Until you're a quivering mess, isolated in your apartment or his apartment or wherever the fuck you happen to live, afraid to move, afraid to breathe, lest you be accused of having an email account to seek malattention, going out with your friends just to see them in public someplace where a man might be seeking malattention. You will never get in front of this. You will never win. DTMF. Dump the motherfucker already. Yeah, there's some quality there. There's something there about him you like. Abusers, controlling asshole, jealous monsters. There's usually something charismatic about them. Otherwise, they would never be able to trick anyone into seeing them. If they were 100% as awful as the controlling, abusive shit is, nobody would we, – we wouldn't even talk about abusive relationships because no one would ever be in one. Abusers are charismatic. They are not 100% awful all across the board, but the percentage of them that is awful is disqualifyingly awful. This is over. You go find a guy who wants to watch you perform and play your music, who wants to watch you do your burlesque shows, who wants to look at you through other people's eyes and think, she's going home with me, she's awesome, other people want her, but I've got her, and I am not threatened by other people desiring her. And I'm not threatened by her wanting to instill that desire in others because she's not my possession because she's not my property. She is her own person and she has chosen me not. She is my person and I get to choose when and where and how she seeks the attention of whoever the fuck she wants to seek attention from. We are homo sapiens, social animals. We need the attention of others and not just the attention of our romantic partner or partners. We need attention from other people generally and broadly. It makes us feel alive. 
We hunger for it. Somebody who wants to deny that to you is someone who wants to destroy you. Yeah, no. Don't this, it's over. Don't take this guy back for his good qualities. Because his bad qualities are fucking toxic. And the longer you're with him, the more poison you are going to ingest, and it'll kill you. Hey, Dan, calling from Colorado. So as you know, uh, effort in the House and Senate to try to defund Planned Parenthood uh, and all the work that it does through the uh, machinations of Medicare and Medicaid. Uh, you might want to explain that to listeners. Uh, in addition, um, it occurs to me that probably people need to hear more from women who have had abortions. I know that's a really personal topic, and as a man, it's not exactly something that I can uh, weigh in on too uh, definitively, but uh, perhaps it might be something you could mention on your show. How about women coming out and saying, yes, I've had an abortion. I've had a safe, legal medical procedure, and while very personal, should stay legal, and I'm one of those people that have done it. Wow, this is a really good idea. I'm surprised that this idea, which is just so good and in a way so obvious, it never occurred to any women out there who've had abortions or not had abortions. Oh, wait a minute. Actually, women have been talking about the abortions that they've been having for decades. Uh, the, the pro-choice movement has always centered, as the kids say on the college campuses, the voices of women who've had abortions to normalize it and to fight the stigma. The most recent example of women having and executing this idea is Shout Your Abortion. There's a website, shoutyourabortion.com, a movement founded by Amelia Bono, Lindy West, and Kimberly Morrison so that women could, without fear and without shame, push back against the stigma and share their stories of the abortions that they have had, which were positive for them and necessary for them and not anything that they should be ashamed of. So, dude caller, excellent idea. Women got there first. Go to shoutyourabortion.com and you will see that your good idea, somebody else had it before you and they did a good thing with it. It's a great website. Everyone should check it out. Hi there. I was wondering, um, a question. I recently found out about how much women were paid to sell their eggs. And I thought about the idea of selling my sperm, but it's not just any sperm. There's uh, a lot of twins in my family. So I was wondering, are there rich women out there that would actually want to buy that possibility, that opportunity of having twins? There's some supply and demand reality here that you have to confront. When a woman is born, she has a couple of million potential egg cells. By the time she hits puberty, she's got about 400,000, 500,000 egg cells. She will release over the course of her reproductive life about 400 egg cells. A dude over the course of his life is going to blow out about 525 billion sperm cells. One shot, one of your twin magic ejaculations is going to have between 40 million and 1.2 billion sperm cells in it. Eggs. Eggs are rarer, harder to find, and therefore much more expensive and much more in demand. Sperm, it's everywhere. We're soaking in it. Eggs, eggs are rare and precious commodities. So no, there is not a rich woman that is going to pay you for her sperm because she's hoping to have twins. 
that woman will do IVF and likely end up with twins or triplets as so many people who do IVF wind up with. So yeah, no, you need to disabuse yourself of this fantasy that some rich woman is going to pay you to jack off into a cup for her. It is not going to happen. You need to drop this in earlier too. Also eggs, much harder to extract, much harder to locate sperm. Pretty easy to extract. Guys are extracting it several times a day. A lot of guys all day long, constantly, and it flies out of their dicks and there it is. You can see it. You can't see the sperm cells, but you can see the ejaculate in which they are swimming. Sperm, easy to collect. Eggs, not so much. I'm calling in response to the woman in 536 who thought that deep throating her boyfriend was uh, giving her strep throat. I just want to float the idea that maybe the blowjobs have nothing to do with it. I'm wondering if her boyfriend has gotten checked for strep throat. Because uh, this kind of thing was happening to my boyfriend where he kept getting strep throat over and over again. And it turned out that I had it. I just didn't have any symptoms. So I was just giving it to him over and over again. Uh, so before you do anything drastic, like give up deep throating, uh, you should have, send your boyfriend to the doctor and make sure that you're not just getting it from his germs rather than from his dick. Hey, Dan. Um, this is a response to the woman from episode 536 who, whose parents were hosting the Syrian refugee family. I would say give them a chance. I mean, she says that it's 99% sure that these people are going to have a problem with her relationship and her sexual orientation. But speaking as a person who's part of a minority group and a family of immigrants, it, the worst thing you can do is prejudge these people. So I, I would just say, like, tell them and then, you know, let the chips fall where they may. Hi, this is just a comment for episode 536 and the guy that was seeing the very religious girl. If you really like her, don't give up on her. I used to be that girl. And the guy that I'm now with for three years, he helped me to see the light, if you will. He helped to unbrainwash me from the religious excrement that had been where my brain was. So please, you know, just continue to ask her questions. Continue to ask her why, why she believes things and why she... Just ask why. Just ask why all the time, why women can't do things, why gay people are, are bad. Just continue to ask her why and make her back it up, and soon she'll see that there's nothing to back it up with at all. And if you really like her, then that'll be great. And just so you know, I used to be one of them, and I'm happy to not be anymore. And we're going to leave it there. Be sure to listen to me rant at length about politics with Eli Sanders and Rip Smith on the Strangers political podcast, Blabbermouth. Read my weekly column, Savage Love, in newspapers all over the country, including the Philadelphia Weekly. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Cunning Minx on Twitter at Cunning Minx. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech-savvy at-risk youth and Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.